Hi friends, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver and my conversation with Alan Watkins. I was introduced to Alan recently by Corey DeVos at Integral Life, who suggested we have a conversation about a book that Alan co-wrote with Ken Wilber. Wicked and Wise is the beginning of a series of books applying integral wisdom to our thorniest problems. The second book, Crowdocracy, has already been published as well. In this case, they use climate change as an example of a wicked problem, which they define as a situation with multiple dimensions, stakeholders, causes and symptoms, and a problem which is evolving. Using the integral map, Watkins and Wilbur explicate its component parts and provide solutions, which is where the wise part of the title comes from. Allen was trained as a neuroscientist and physician, and is today recognized as an international expert on leadership and human performance. He's written numerous academic papers and academic book chapters in multiple fields, as well as authoring five books himself. I called him at his office in Hampshire, England, to talk about Wicked and Wise, climate change, the problems of globalization and democracy, getting CEOs to do the right thing, and hey, even Donald Trump. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. You can find out more about Alan at his company's website, complete-coherence.com. We start with Alan describing why he was moved to write Wicked and Wise. So you got together with Ken yeah. and put this book together, Wicked and Wise. Yes, yeah, so which... how that started, really, if, if I may, um, yeah, please. It, it really started, the whole idea of Wicked and Wise, not only as a book, but as a, a book series, is I was watching the BBC News, and um, I literally was sort of uh, having that experience, I'm sure you know, many people have, when they watch the sort of news, uh, of, uh, you know, oh my goodness, I've heard this story a hundred times. Uh, and the particular story I was watching was about, you know, the struggles in healthcare and the crisis in the uh, healthcare system. Uh, you know, and I must have seen that story three or four times a year, every year for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and, and I sort of started to get irritated on the basis of, um, you know, this is amazing that, you know, that nobody seems to solve this problem. I mean, I'm hearing basically the same story over and over again. Um, and then the sort of paradox hit me that, you know, um, if, if you watch the whole kind of futurology conversation around the knowledge doubling rate and all of that, and, you know, how knowledge is doubling now every 13 months, and IBM predicted it's going to get down to 12 hours, and the sort of accelerating pace of change that everybody talks about. You know, on the one hand, you've got that, that sort of rapid change. On the other hand, you've got these intractable problems that never get solved. So that was the start point, and I started to sort of dig in to well, why, why is it that these problems are intractable? Um, and out of that was born the whole notion of, you know, uh, uh, Wicked and Wise as a, as a book with Ken and the book series. Um, you know, how could, and essentially, how can we break through on these, you know, endemic, intractable problems? Well, and that's what I love about the book and your whole approach here, because you're using integral theory, specifically Ken Wilber's Aqua Theory. And applying it to what you call these wicked problems of the world, which are multidimensional problems that mm. go back and are unsol unsolvable, mm. all of what you just said. And we all sort of have those kinds of problems in our lives, too, as individuals. And that's interesting. And then you focus on climate change. Yeah, we use climate change as an exemplar. But, I mean, there are many, uh, you know, wicked problems. Uh, right. you know, human trafficking, the economy poverty, uh, affordable health care, education, criminal justice. I mean, the list is endless, um, you know, and as the world becomes more complicated, the size of the list increases because wicked problems are essentially problems of humanity, problems of people, if you will. The, the people are at the heart of all of this. Um, and so as the world becomes more complicated, the number of wicked problems increases. Yeah. So, And you um, might even say, I mean, looking back developmentally, that moving into every new stage is a wicked problem because you're facing problems that you don't have solutions for. Uh, and that's part of the, the, we characterize six sort of features of a wicked problem. 
Um, you know, and that's that's certainly one of them. But you know, our, our view is that you, for them to be wicked as opposed to complex. So if you think of wicked problems, not wicked in terms of evil, but wicked as beyond complicated. You know, so <laughs> if they've sort of got four or five of these features, they're probably just complex problems. Right. If they have all six, then they're wicked. You know. Well, what are the six? Yeah. So, just... so the six things are first of all, you know, each wicked problem is multi-dimensional, and and that sort of plays right into the heart of the Aqua theory is that. Uh, you know, they have to be understood in the I, the we, and the it dimension. There is an interior, there is an exterior dimension to every single one of these problems. And one of the primary reasons we're stuck is we take a, a purely objective, rational, external view, not mm-hmm. only of the problem, but also of the answer. You know, so, uh, you know, the answer to some of these problems is structural or it's a system or it's a process. Uh, and so our view is, well, that's why we're stuck, is we're taking a one-dimensional view to a multi-dimensional problem. So factor number one is all of these problems are multi-dimensional. They're, they involve multiple stakeholders, not just one set of stakeholders, even two sets of stakeholders, multiple stakeholders. Yeah. And all of those stakeholders have different perspectives. All of them have multiple causes. They're not single-cause problems. They all manifest in multiple ways, so therefore they have multiple symptoms and they have multiple solutions, and they're constantly evolving. So those are the sort of big six dimensions of a wicked problem, multidimensional, multiple stakeholders, multiple causes, multiple symptoms, multiple solutions, and constantly evolving. Um, So so that's what we describe. Yeah. So then mapping it with the Aqua map, um, you know, it's just the best map we have because it includes more of the territory. Correct. The interiors, the exteriors the individual, the collective. And so mapping it onto the aqua system just naturally reveals new understanding or what what happens then? How well, does that work? So there's two things. There's there's not only having the map, uh, but Ken and I had a long conversation about it's one thing to have a map, but one of the critical things is to apply the map in a coherent fashion. So the sort of essence of how to break through it was what we called integral coherence, you know, the integral map applied in a coherent fashion. We call that out very specifically because you can have the map, but apply it in a partial or incomplete fashion. So what can you tell us about that second step? Well, uh, that um, the way of implementation is, is critical. So, um, uh, you know, that there has to be a sort of compatibility or coherence between all four quadrants. So if you uh, recognize the problem, whether it's climate change or poverty or, uh, you know, the economy uh, or any of these things, if you recognize the uh, exterior kind of uh, objective system process dimension to it, um, and you have all sorts of sophisticated uh, strategies for that, there has to be an equal sophistication on the interior strategies. So there has to be coherence between the interior and the exterior. There has to be coherence between the I and the we, you know, so if there's a sort of disproportionate balance in one quadrant versus another, then there's insufficient coherence between the quadrants. You know, there has to be coherence uh, between the individuals involved in the definition of the problem as well as the resolution of the problem. So the sort of relationship dynamics become crucial. There has to be a certain coherence uh, in the integrally informed facilitator who's trying to move us forward on the, you know, so, you know, the map is one thing, applying a map in a coherent fashion, uh, you know, takes it to another whole level. So for these global problems, such as uh, climate change, there's no integral facilitator to come in and bring the world leaders together, or, or, or is there, or you know, how do you see that? Well, well, I mean, there is facilitation. So when uh, you look at, uh, I mean, we've recently become in, in, started to become involved in the Israel-Palestine conflict. There hmm. are facilitators, uh, you know, who've been doing, you know, noble work uh, for some yes. time. But the question is, when the problem is this complicated, what is the uh, integral address, as Ken would say, of the facilitator themselves? what is their understanding of the integral address of the participants in the room? Uh, and, you know, how good are they at facilitating that sort of shared understanding? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not sufficient to be integrally informed. 
you have to better apply that understanding in a coherent fashion in the room with the people in front of you. Um, So, you know, we call that out very specifically as an additional ingredient, if you will. So these big, um, you know, uh, multinational problems, um, you know, are being facilitated. But, you know, one of the reasons, you know, we think that we're not making sufficient progress is the quality of that facilitation. It's, it's like anything. Uh, but that's not only, you know, some of these wicked problems aren't only just multinational problems. The problem of education, for example, occurs in a local community. So many people will experience wicked problems in their own church, in their own community. Uh, the problems of poverty can exist in a very small territory. So one mustn't think of these wicked problems as purely just, you know, global phenomena. They're, they're local right. phenomena too. No, very good point. And I, th- I think even, you know, sitting and facilitating a Boulder dinner party, yeah. <laughs> you know, calls on some of the, I mean, these skills, I think it sort of naturally comes online uh, at the integral stage of consciousness as we become the, quote, universal donors that are really able to not only communicate with people at all, you know, addresses, but really appreciate them. Uh, and I think that's a really critical quality, Jeff, is that, uh, you know, as more people kind of wake up to Ken's map and the power of the map that Ken's uh, created for us all, uh, you know, one's intellectual comprehension of the uh, theory usually goes in advance of one's implementation in one's own life. Right. Um, you know, so we intellectually clock it, you know, oh, there's this great map, I understand how the map works and da 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 but being able to embody it, to be a living example, uh, you know, to be able to transcend your own ego, to create some, uh, some altitude within your own consciousness is, t- is a totally different thing from understanding the need to create that altitude. Yeah. You know, so many people have got the intellectual theory of it, but are still you know, on quite a journey in terms of the application in their own lives. Yeah. No, I, I, I can see... You know, to whatever degree I have made that uh, shift, I I can see it. When I first got into Integral, I was, you know, basically begging people to read Ken Wilber books so that I could talk to somebody. I mean, I didn't know anybody. And I, you know, sort of gave that up because it didn't work. You know, I think what happens is we move into a place of trusting the system. It's like the second part of your title. It's the wise part. You know, what is it about a wise person? Think of a wise grandparent. Hmm. You know, they're just unflappable. They love everybody. They're not too worked about, worked up about the things that a parent might be worked up about, for instance. Well, I think that, that's, that can be correct. Uh, but it, there's, there's also a real shadow here that, it's, uh, that I think it's really critical. And again, this goes to the, you know, the um, effective implementation, if I can, you know, or coherent implementation of the integral frame is being able to spot the shadow of rocking back and rocking forward. So that sort of rocking forward proactivity, I'm going to now uh, take my, not only my conceptual understanding of integral frame, but my embodiment forward in the world, or I'm going to rock back and allow stuff to unfold. Now, and in that rocking back, you know, it's easy to drift into a position of passivity of, um, you know, oh, it's all good. It's all arising, you know, um, uh, and tolerance of, you know, um, lack of progress, tolerance of uh, suffering uh, in the sort of perspective of, you know, well, it's all, it'll all come out in the wash. Um, and so it's, it, I think it's a really key shadow to spot, you know, the, the, the risk of being passive, yeah. um, you know, and just allowing things to unfold. So in that grandparent example, some of that is real wisdom, you know, knowing with a degree of confidence that if you give it a bit of time and a very careful nudge and a bit of guidance, it will move forward in a positive direction. And being able to distinguish that from, frankly, a sort of an abdication yeah. um, in a sort of uh, quasi-spiritual way. In, in, in um, some ways, one of the markers of an integral consciousness is the ability to hold both of those at the same time. Yeah. You know, so we have that, you know, sort of a kick-ass grandparent. Yeah. <laughs> or it's all available when we need it because we have a greater space of 
awareness where perspectives arise and pass away um, sort of under their own power is how I see it, yeah. you know, as needed. Yeah. There's a lot more available to you in that. No, indeed. And that, but I think that's a, a developmental step within the sort of, you know, post-post-conventional mindset is, you know, the, a much greater attunement to when is my rocking back, you know, drifting towards a passivity. And, when, and then similarly, when is my rocking forward, you know, right. too assertive, too interventionist, uh, yes. you know, and not sufficiently tolerant and too impatient, you know, and being able to notice those and accurately sort of determine when you're too far rocked forward or too far rocked back. Right. Yeah, so Alan, you work with this in with organizations, right? Tell me yeah. a little bit about your work. Uh, yeah, so we, uh, I run a company which basically is pointing uh, you know, to some of the, the, the big power brokers in the world. Uh, and and the, the sort of metaphor I often talk about is um, if you think of the global financial crisis of 2008, um, when you boil all that down, that was basically 50 guys that caused that uh, in different organizations, most of them financial institutions, whether it was the Fed uh, or the rating agencies or some of the banking uh, or hedge funds. You've got guys who are making individual decisions that you know, are fantastically financially rewarding for themselves. But when taken together in a deregulated financial market, doubled American debt in a year, caused 30 million people to be unemployed uh, in a year, and uh, created hundreds of thousands of suicides as people's lives collapsed. So 50 guys, and, uh, and, and I've tracked down, I've got 34 names so far, so we're moving down the list. Only one hmm. woman, interestingly. But, so it's a problem predominantly of men. Uh, those 50 guys caused untold suffering across the planet. And so there's, it's a sort of metaphor, really, that uh, actually uh, what happens in our lives is often in the hands of a tiny, small elite. And there was a very interesting study out in The New Scientist uh, about two years ago. They analyzed, um, I think, something like uh, you know, 40,000 multinational companies and came to the conclusion that 47 uh, pulled the strings of all the others. Hmm. Um, and if you think there's about three or four power brokers behind the scenes of each of those 47, so net-net, there's about 500 guys calling the shots on the planet. Hmm. So, you know, whilst there's so much power invested in such a tiny minority who are basically, uh, you know, conventional in their thinking, you know, who don't have, you know, a, a huge amount of altitude in their development, they're making decisions that affect all of our lives in a, you know, often a negative way. Mm -hmm. So if we can't develop those leaders, uh, if we can't create some altitude, they will continue to make decisions which serve them personally, but cause suffering across, you know, nations and across society uh, yes. at large. So our company is basically pointing in the direction of those large corporations to try and work in the leaders. And as Ken would say, to, you know, to wake up and grow up and clean up and help them to show up in a way that serves humanity, not just their own, you know, wallet or their own life. So how do you do that? Do you go into companies or do yep. you, yeah. Yeah, so we go in and, and of course, uh, you can't go in with an integral language, an integral frame, uh, or, or not explicitly, um, because, you know, these guys are operating, you know, to use a sort of, um, uh, sort of spiral dynamics color, sort of the, the orange or, uh, you know, what Ken might call the amber level uh, of development. So a sort of fairly, um, in eager maturity terms, expert achiever mindset. And they're often one-dimensional. You know, they recognize the world of it, you know, the world yeah. of doing. They don't recognize their interior very much and they don't value the interpersonal, uh, you know, very deeply. Um, yeah. So you've got to go in with a language uh, that they understand. It's no good going in with that. So languaging is absolutely crucial to even to strike up a relationship uh, with corporations uh, is you've got to speak the language that they speak, which is profitability, you know, quarterly returns, uh, um, you know, even to sort of start to get some work going. And then gradually over time, um, you know, through the relationship and the relationship dynamic and being able to add value to their organization, to them individually as human beings, to their teams and their organizations, 
um, in a way that matters to them initially, but gradually as they start to wake up to a wider understanding of what's going on, what really matters, become a little bit more purpose-driven, uh, you know, other conversations start to come online and become possible. Uh, but it's, you know, painstaking work. Uh, you know, it takes a lot of resilience uh, and quite a bit of time to gradually, you know, guide them on a journey uh, to a sort of great, greater levels of enlightenment, if you will. Wow. So tell me about that. How much time does it take? And well, what are the steps? And how do you see it happening? Is it permanent acquisition for them? Uh, well, first of all, none of them come to us saying, you know, look, I've clocked or I've heard about this thing called vertical development. And I think, you know, my leadership would be served if I developed myself, you know, more uh, and cultivated some inner altitude. Not one of them has ever said that to us. I mean, it's not, it's not a, a right. topic on the board meeting, um, you know, so <laughs> you can't start there. Um, right. So many business executives in the same way, you know, their life has collapsed into, um, you know, the, the, the one dimension of doing. In fact, I had a book out at the back end of last year called Four Dimensional Leadership, which is sort of the I, the we, and the it. Uh, those three dimensions. And the fourth dimension is altitude in the I and the we and the it. And what has been our observation in the corporate world is it's, you know, you know, business executives have built the Khalifa Towers of doing. I mean, there's a huge altitude on doing and the sophistication uh, and complexity in what they do is enormous. But on the being, you know, it's basically a concrete car park. And on the relating, it's a pop-up tent. So there's a sort of disproportionate altitude on the doing. In the same way as the spiritual seeker has created an enormous interior, hugely sophisticated, advanced levels of consciousness, um, but they don't do much in the world. You know, they right. meditate for 17 hours. So it's basically the same mistake, but in a different direction. Yeah. And, and so what we're saying in sort of what we really need is four-dimensional leaders, you know, leaders who have, you know, a matched degree of altitude in I, we, and it. Uh, and so part of the conversation um, is to open them up uh, initially that, look, there are these three dimensions in every moment. As Ken would say, there's these three dimensions in every moment of our lives. There is something that we're doing in the world. You know, we are human beings who are turning up to do that doing and we relate to each other. Um, so even starting there, you know, opening them up to those three dimensions can make a profound difference because totally. they recognize it. When you, when you put it to them in those simple terms, they start to realize that they are human and some of their dissatisfaction with their work is because they've lost touch with their inner humanity. Hallelujah. Yeah, that's fantastic, Alan. That's uh, God's work and, uh, you know, God's beam, man. But, but I, I, what I'm going to say, having done this for 20 years, um, you know, it's probably one of the biggest learnings is... Uh, it's very easy to get distracted by the world of doing. You know, when you're in the objective, rational world and it's intense and it's hyper-variable and it's changing at speed and it's hugely competitive, you know, I've got a lot of compassion for, you know, the, the job of a modern executive is hugely more complicated than it was even 10 years ago. Right. Um, in any aspect of their career, uh, you know, whether it's the, the financing of their company, the marketing, uh, you know, the people dimension, whatever, it's so much more complicated. So you can see how easy it is to lose touch with your interior and how easy it is to devalue relationships, you know, uh, you know, uh, other than just a very superficial acknowledgement that relationships are important, customers are important and all that. But right. actually, when you look at executives and how they apportion their time across their diary on any given week, and if you sort of say, well, look, how many of those meetings that you had were about doing something? How many of those meetings that you had where, where the enti entire agenda was just about deepening the quality of the relationship between you and the person in front of you? And how many of those you know, meetings did you have where you were you know, developing the quality of your own thinking, the quality of your own emotional intelligence, the quality of your interior, of your virtue, of your consciousness, or any of the, you know, the sophistication of your ego? Or any, how many of those meetings... And you'll find that nearly all their meetings are it. Mm -hmm. And so just getting them to take stock and, as Ken would say, wake up to an I and a we and, and, and start to help them understand that actually the, the biggest competitive advantage they really have is no, no longer in the it. Of course, you can still eke out some competitive advantage in the it, 
But the biggest competitive advantage they actually have is in the I and the we. And predominantly because so few of their competitors are doing anything of uh, 20 degrees of sophistication in I and we. They're all fighting in the it world. Yeah. Now, do you see this happening? Are you seeing progress? Are you seeing any organizations that exemplify this? We're beginning to see it. I mean, Frederick Leloux's book, uh, Reinventing Organizations, called out about 15 uh, organizations, the biggest of them being Patagonia, where development was a key piece right at the heart of the business. And that was, they're about a half a billion dollar company. Uh, and that, those are the only ones he could find. So, um, but our conversations, uh, I mean, Ken and I have been doing, uh, working on a project called Integral Society. Uh, whose website launches uh, later this year, uh, which started with uh, Ken being approached by Yulia Tymoshenko, the previous president of the Ukraine, um, to try and help the rebuilding of the Ukraine. Um, and so uh, part of my contribution to that project with Ken was to interview some you know, very senior business executives. Um, and so even though they wouldn't use integral language, you know, many of them are beginning to realize that there is something else other than quarterly profit. There is something else other than return to shareholder. There is something other than just growth and the relentless pursuit of growth. Um, you know, so more right companies are recognizing you know, social purpose is important, community engagement, or what's called the social license to operate is important, the way that we keep score, the financial modeling. So it's beginning to bubble up, um, but it is difficult uh, to, to help them and, and you know, wake up and grow up in these areas. Let's maybe open it up a little bit. You mentioned integral society. So looking at the whole political scene, um, just the trajectory of humanity yeah. uh, on this planet at this time, what do you see? Well, uh, we, we had um, the second book in the Wicked and Wise series. So after the one that Ken and I wrote, uh, I wrote the second one focused specifically on the political environment. Uh, and that one uh, came out last week. It's called Crowdocracy which is the idea of the crowd and democracy. Um, and uh, so the idea there is that, uh, as Jimmy Carter would say, you know, if we take America as the sort of bastion or one of the bastions of democracy, Jimmy Carter's view is America has ceased to be a functioning democracy. It's become an oligarchy. You can basically buy your way in. Uh, and with the rule changes around the funding of uh, you know, governor or senator uh, uh, funding, um, you can buy your way in. So 91% of all representatives in America who spend the most money get elected. So therefore, if you've got huge donors backing you, they will just buy your way in. So uh, money dictates who has the power. Um, and so, of course, that's terribly corrupting. Now, when you add that to a, a lobby system, where you know you're allowed to to lobby uh, you know self-interest uh, you know you can see how jimmy carter reaches the conclusion that you know among, america is no longer a functioning democracy you're just buying way in and the whole trump extravaganza uh, is an interesting sort of commentary on that so we wrote this book saying well actually um if you look around the world uh, in the year 2000 there were 120 democracies there are now only 115. So we've gone past the high tide mark of democracy. Democracy is on the decline, and our view is democracy is just an evolutionary step. It's an orange-amber step, uh, and social democracy is the sort of green version, um, yeah. and uh, holacracy would be a yellow-teal version, and we think crowdocracy is a more of a turquoise version, hmm. saying actually, if you unlock the wisdom of the crowd, um, the crowd will come up with better answers than any elected representatives ever could because none of us is as smart as all of us. So when you get a crowd together, it goes one of two ways. The crowd either becomes a dumb mob and somebody gets lynched or you actually unlock the wisdom of the crowd. Uh, and there's quite good uh, and powerful evidence now showing that actually with the right conditions, the crowd is way smarter than any small elite, whether it's a political elite, a religious elite, an educational elite, a financial elite. Hmm. The crowd comes up with a better answer. So our suggestion in crowdocracy is, uh, and we're already starting to see it around the world, that crowd-sourced political decision-making would serve society much better 
than some, you know, tiny elite who, you know, I mean, in America, that 70, up to 70% of all senators' time is spent on the re-election uh, trail, not actually trying to solve it's, the problem. It's tragic. Yeah. So, you know, the, the hope for the future is, uh, you know, people are beginning to wake up to that there is a better way. And so part of the point of this whole series of books is to say, well, look, here's a template that Ken and I wrote. So the Wicked and Wise template, you know, coherently applied integral frame, that will break you through on pretty much any of these problems if you apply it properly, you know. And then uh, here it is applied in the political dimension for, you know, in terms of crowdocracy. Uh, the next one's going to be about finance and the economic system. Uh, then we're going to write one um, uh, about healthcare. Uh, we're going to write one about business itself. We're going to write one about artificial intelligence and the sort of man-machine debate. So there's going to be a series of these books saying, well, actually, uh, there is a way forward. Um, and, uh, you know, have a go. So here's some templates in these different domains of life. Start experimenting. You know, we're, we're not helpless victims in this. We're not, uh, you know, we don't have to be passive in the face of this accelerated change. Quite the reverse. We live at a very exciting moment in human history where we can take back the ownership and we can start to affect change. You know, we've got a map. If we apply this map uh, well and in, in a sort of smart way, we really can uh, make some fantastic progress. Yeah, that's great. Very exciting. I'm looking forward to the, the whole series. Getting back to crowdocracy, how does it work? Well, uh, there's a sort of four critical conditions in terms of the wisdom of the crowd. Um, so, you know, one of the things that's absolutely crucial in unlocking the wisdom, you know, and, and avoiding the crowd becoming the sort of the dumb mob, as it were, is diversity of perspectives. Um, and so this is what, what you see is that... Uh, uh, when you don't have diversity in in the room, you get a much poorer answer, uh, which is why, sort of paradoxically, if you have 10 experts trying to come up with an answer uh, versus sort of seven experts and three idiots, the seven experts and the three idiots come up with a better answer than the 10 <laughs> experts. You know, okay. And it's sort of counterintuitive. You think, well, how is that even possible? And part of the reason is... Um, you know, because you've got a diversity of opinion, which is why when you put women in business, it's not the fact that they've got a different gender, uh, you know, I don't mean a gender, it's not the fact that women, you know, are a different sex, it's the fact that they come with a different opinion. Yeah. So when you have different opinions, one of the reasons you get a dumb mob is everybody's basically uh, of uh, the same opinion. You know, everybody wants that person to be lynched. Um, so the diversity of knowledge and opinion is absolutely crucial to unlocking. So the more diverse uh, people you get in the room, uh, the better and the wiser the answer. So you want a whole mix. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, there was a really brilliant example of this. Post the 2008 economic collapse, uh, Iceland uh, not only got sort of really cheesed off with their bankers, but they got cheesed off with their politicians for creating the context in which the bankers could bankrupt the country. So they took the politicians to task. And there was a whole movement in Iceland. And I went up and interviewed many of the participants in this for the book to rewrite the Icelandic constitution. And they basically crowdsourced their constitution. Hmm. And they came up with the most amazing document. Um, and now, uh, unfortunately, it's become the subject of a whole political infight as the politicians are fighting tooth and nail trying to avoid adopting a new constitution. But the people, when you've got the diversity in the room, came up with a much better answer than a load of minority interest politicians could. So diversity of knowledge and opinion, one of the critical conditions. Well, and, and I saw they just drummed out their prime minister well, out of and, office. And, no, they, they did. You know, so they're, 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 they've learned that actually the power of the people. Uh, yeah, I mean, they were on the street. I mean, talk about an intelligent mob or, or, or right. what, what an interesting evolute that crowd was, you know. Well, they've Just, learned it through, you know, crowdsourcing of their constitution, you know, the, uh, public action. They won't stand for this nonsense. Yeah, and it's um, a small enough country where we can actually have a sort of a real-time example. It's wonderful. Isn't it beautiful? Uh, you know, yeah. and they're sort of leading the way. Uh, uh, and actually, if you look economically at their turnaround in Iceland, 
uh, I mean, many countries would die for the kind of economic turnaround because they, oh, they yeah. literally were bankrupt. Yeah, re remember the predictions that we had in 2008. Iceland was the poster boy for, you know, these people are going away. This is, this is, this is crashed beyond repair. Correct. Not so fast. Correct. Yeah. Uh, you know, and now they're, they're recognized as an incredible sort of economic recovery story. Yeah. No, they're an interesting country to, 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 to watch. Yeah, very interesting. Um, now, uh, and it, it's these four conditions, what makes a wise crowd? So there's the diversity of knowledge and opinion. Yep. If you just get the same old players in the room and you don't have any difference, then it kind of dumbs down. Yep. But if you get plenty of diversity in the room, uh, wisdom starts to emerge. So that's condition number one. Condition number two is independence of thought. Um, so, you know, you haven't got one person unduly influencing the, the person next to them. So people need the ability to uh, function independently. They need to come up with their own thoughts, their own ideas, and bring those ideas to the table. Uh, you know, and of course, one of the things uh, that, that you can do with crowdocracy is democracy itself was largely a pragmatic solution because we couldn't all turn up to the government house to vote. We sent somebody to vote on our behalf because we couldn't all show up. But crowdocracy couldn't have existed 10 years ago because technology couldn't enable it. But right. now we can all turn up through technology. We can well, all electronically show up. Well, when you say that, it just does have a certain feel of inevitability, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we can, with our own, all our independent thinking uh, and our diverse perspectives now, all show up. So it, when there's independence of thought uh, and a diversity of uh, opinion in the room, wisdom starts to emerge. And the third condition is the sort of decentralization of power. Um, so one person in a sort of centralized system, one person sort of hierarchically dictating to the rest. But when you've got decentralization of power, uh, where you know, there isn't a boss telling you how it is, uh, and people can draw on their local knowledge and their local data and their local information, uh, that also facilitates uh, the wisdom to emerge. And the fourth, and perhaps one of the most critical conditions for the wisdom to emerge, rather than the dumb mob, is integration itself. Uh, and when we wrote this book, my uh, uh, Iman Stratonis and, and I wrote this book, um, you know, the crowdocracy, uh, this fourth quality, um, if you look at the source material, you know, some of these books that have been written about the wisdom of a the crowd, they talked about, um, you know, assimilation and uh, of the different ideas. Uh, but we thought, no, no, it's integration. This isn't yes. a question of one idea trumping another. And it's this really important integral principle that everybody's got a piece of the truth. And you have to integrate these ideas. It's not an either-or world. It's a transcend and include world. Exactly. So if you can and that transcend word is really important. Because crucial. we have that, that's the, the, the part that you identified earlier in the call, that the system is evolving. Exactly and right. creativity is happening. New things are emerging out of integration. Exactly right. And, and of course, it's not aggregation. So if you read um, uh, James Sarecki's book on the wisdom of crowd, he talks um, not of integration, but more aggregation. Well, it, it, there's a profound difference Boring. between integration and aggregation. Yeah, totally. You know, aggregation is more an averaging. Now, when you average you know, it tends to dumb down. Yeah. You know, that's that old joke about, you know, a camel is a racehorse designed by committee. You know, <laughs> you, know you get some kind of freak output, which is way <laughs> less able. You know, so integration is not an aggregation. Uh, it's not one idea trumps another. It's all ideas are at the party and we transcend and include the lot. So those are the four conditions that you need for, for, for crowdocracy or for a wise crowd. Um, you know, and we go through in, in the uh, crowdocracy book, well, how could we go from our current democratic system, uh, which has largely failed, and we run through a whole list of uh, reasons or uh, evidence for, you know, how do we know democracy is failing? And we, we go through a whole list. It's quite a compelling argument, uh, yeah. uh, you know, that not least that, you know, modern democracies have become a spectator sport. You know, it's become entertainment. You know, so we don't sit around uh, either in the UK or in Europe and debate policy. We debate personality. Right. 
you know, which is not what this is meant to be about. We're not sitting here thinking what's in the best interest of the country. We're sitting around talking about somebody's hairstyle or their tie, you know, or some kind of nonsense. I mean, it's a spectator sport, um, you know, and the media is complicit, of course, in that. Um, so we've got to get away from that. You know, we've got to take the power back into the hands of right. everybody. Now, you know, the, the, the red flag that raises for me is that so that it doesn't have a hierarchical um, um, component built into it. And do we really want to enfranchise red and amber and in the case of China, a lot of red? You know, I mean, how, how do we you know, account for that problem? Well, the, the organizing principle in terms of, you know, what gets decided is not uh, a, a majority block vote. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you've got, you know, uh, 10 million voters and 9 million of them are red and amber, you know, and only 1 million of them are yellow or teal, you know, the 9 million don't outvote the 1 million. Now, if you've got the organizing principle is, you know, the majority rule, you know, one less enlightened bunch can outvote the more enlightened bunch. Yeah. But if your organizing principle is wisdom, not volume, you can get some different answers. Does that make sense? It does. In theory, I'm struggling to imagine how that is implemented in practice, but maybe it just requires a new world. So in the book, we work, we, you know, we work some live examples and we, you know, we just encourage people to you know, just try it. Just try it in your local community. Try it in your local soccer club, you know, mm -hmm. your local sports thing, your local church, you know, your local business. I mean, just start to try and develop this crowdocratic muscle. Well, there's where, a real live example happening in the United States right now with our politics. Right. Because we have the popular vote is going to Donald Trump. Right. And the, um, you know... The, the Republican Party and the Republican establishment, which is, you know, built in and responsible and really has to care, they're wondering how they can wrest this from him at the convention. And so we're seeing the rabble, you know, voting for Donald Trump. I mean, it's basically red, early amber, authoritarian type people. And there's, you know, 30%, 40% of the Republican Party fit that category. Yeah. And the, you know, orange, uh, green-tinged, amber establishment that says, wait a minute. And so we'll see how that works out, but it's happening in real time right here. Well, isn't it fascinating? The very power brokers who were, you know, uh, elitist, you know, attracting all the money, all the power, all the decision-making for themselves are now being undone. Yes. You know, so, uh, you know, the, the irony is, you know, from this side of the Atlantic is not lost. You know, we're watching this system unravel and the very yes. people who had the sort of grip of power are being undone by a, an apparently less sophisticated operator. I mean, I think yes. actual Donald Trump is a genius in many ways. You know, he's a genius at playing the media uh, and disrupting the system. You know, yes. I mean, he's, he's not a big no, supporter the gift... of the political system or the media. The, the gift of Donald Trump is the disruption of that system. Right. And it is a long, it is, you know, long-standing or long-range effects of that and a permanent change that, uh, you know, will be evolutionary. And we only hope that we don't get Donald Trump as president as a wild-ass, wild-card, you know, outcome, black swan outcome. Yeah. You know. And well, I don't we think see. that'll I, I mean, uh, if there, I think we, we sometimes overestimate the power of a single politician. Yeah. Um, you know, it's certainly, and, uh, you know, Tony Blair, uh, has, you know, his press aide wrote books about this, is that, you know, and I think Obama's been on record uh, in his frustration as the, the leader of the free world and sometimes his frustration of being able to get anything done. And I would hold Obama up as one of the best presidents America has ever seen. Yeah, me too. Um, you know, but even he couldn't get some stuff through. Right. You know, so I think people run in fear of the, you know, the nightmare scenario of Donald Trump. Well, you know, that presupposes he could get stuff done. You know, I think he probably could get less stuff done because yeah. the system no, that's itself, right. you know, is so log-jammed. Yeah. You know, right. So part of crowdocracy was say, look, we're not stuck with a system. This is an ev the system we've got right now is just an evolutionary staging post. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we can have a different system, a system where, you know, which is true to the original principles of democracy, which is powered by the people. Yes, right? that's we right. Don't, that's not what, how it currently operates, right? This isn't people power. I mean, right. there's quite 
powerful academic research in America to suggest that the average uh, member of the public in America has very little power. Yeah. Well, and I would also point out that on the left, Bernie Sanders is also waking up a 30% of the, or more actually currently over 50% Mm. of the Democrats who Mm. are, you know, entering this world space of where social democracy is an option. Mm. And that used to be a third rail in American politics. You couldn't talk about, you know, social democracies that would kill you. And no more. So both this Trump and this Sanders guys, these two, have Mm. come in and, you know, opened up world spaces that needed to be online. And and I think part of it is a reaction against people's profound disenchantment with the political process. Yes. You know, that they don't have a voice. They don't say. And so what we're advocating in crowd, this is how in crowdocracy, you have a voice. We take the power away from elected representatives. In fact, the subtitle of the book is called The End of Politics, right? Take yeah. the, we don't actually need politicians. With technology-enabled platforms, you know, it's not, you know, there is no longer a, a political elite. The power goes back to the people. And if you manage the crowd and set the right conditions, we can come up with much better, much wiser, more enlightened, more inclusive uh, decisions than any vested elite can. Yeah. So that, that, that's the case we make in crowdocracy. It's yeah. really like, you know, how do you really apply uh, turquoise decision-making on a mass scale? Um, and, and again, we'll even address the things like, of course, you couldn't apply this in large parts of the world that are still in tribal, you know, uh, right. meltdown. You know, the way, the place to apply this is in democratic and particularly social democratic systems. Well, maybe so Iceland. Not too much of an evolutionary jump for them. It sounds like Iceland would be a, a prime candidate. And in fact, we, you know, we've been having conversations uh, in the House of Lords in the UK, um, you know, debating, you know, how to get crowdocracy going, try to get the movement. Oh, um, fantastic. We, we've had a similar debate in the Dutch Parliament. Uh, in fact, we have a, a Dutch-based charity called Crowd.ngo. Uh, where people can go and participate in the conversation. We're about in in May to go up and have a similar conversation in the Icelandic parliament. Hmm. Uh, We're due to come to Canada, uh, uh, hopefully later in in July, probably, and and get the conversation going there. There's another one teed up for Portugal. And it taps into this zeitgeist that, you know, people are profoundly disillusioned with the political process. uh, And now we we don't have to put up with it anymore. We can take the power back. Um, you know, the crowd can decide what is in the best interests of the nation much better than a vested elite. Mm-hmm. Well, that is fantastic, Alan. I'm, I'm really excited about your work and want to uh, stay in touch with you on it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we're, um, actually, I wanted to ask you, uh, have you, are you familiar with the web community Reddit? R-E-D-D-I-T? I've heard of it. I'm not yes. familiar with it. It's something you should check out because it has managed to harness the wisdom of of huge crowds. There's, I forget how many hundreds of millions of people um, hit it every month. And it's a series of these silos or communities where people talk about relationships or any number of things. There's thousands of them. Um, And so in the relationship one, for instance, a person would write about their boyfriend problem and... And at the end of it, there would be comments. But there's two things that change this from a typical comment section, which can be horrible. One is that every comment is able to be upvoted or downvoted by the community. So that is an astonishing thing. And then there's comments to the comments and comments to those. And in the conversation, you'll have a coherent conversation with jokes and punchlines that are happening among 20 people or 30 people. And right. so that's one thing that, that, that Reddit does that is, changes everything as far as I'm concerned. And the second is that most of them or many of the big silos, big communities are moderated. Right. So there's somebody bringing an intelligence to, you know, following rules and all of the good right. stuff that keep it from flaming. Right. And so it's really uh, a... a an astonishing place that I think is metabolizing a lot of multi-perspectivalism. 
Right. So I'll check that out. I'm just on it now. So um, in terms of the sort of uh, the moderation, uh, you know, I think that's absolutely key. And again, in crowdocracy, we, we talk about guardians of the process is that hmm. you have to have somebody who's uh, essentially sort of neutral, uh, but holds the process. Because if you just let it go into anarchy, chaos, it becomes a rabble, a dumb mob, somebody gets lynched. We see this in the internet where even the integral, the integral community is itself awash with trolls, you know, yes. attacking you know, other members of the integral community. I mean, it's bizarre to watch from a distance. I know. Uh, it's absolutely sort of vile, some of what goes no, on. No, it's, it's really something. It, it's I read it right? and I think, human beings, Jesus. Yeah. You know, wow. Right? So, uh, <laughs> so I think the moderation uh, you know, of the conversation is absolutely crucial. Yeah. Uh, left to its own devices, it will dumb down. Yeah. But effectively moderated, and, and my sort of view would be, you know, the, the, the more integrally mature uh, and coherent the facilitator or the moderator or the, or the guardian, the more wisdom will emerge, you know, yeah. the more enlightened perspectives will eventually come out, which transcends and includes all previous levels. Yeah. that people can buy into. So I, I think the quality of the conversation, that was certainly the case, uh, you know, talking to the people who crowdsourced the Constitution in Iceland. You know, some of the, the, the nuance and the sophistication that came out, and the people voted for it in droves. Uh, you know, it, yeah. so there are examples around the world of, you know, we're not helpless victims in all this. You know, um, you know hope, hope is on the horizon, you know, yeah, it's starting to bubble up. Well, that's a, a, a really great conversation, Alan. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, I look forward to hearing the, the audio as you've edited it out. Yeah, we'll keep you posted. Okay. Nice to talk to you, Jeff. Have a great day. Likewise. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. My thanks again to Alan Watkins for sharing some of the key ideas of his book, Wicked and Wise, How to Solve the World's Toughest Problems, written with Ken Wilber. You can find out more about Alan and his consulting company, Complete Coherence, at complete-coherence.com. Thanks again for listening.